Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Atsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode number 126 of ADHD for Smartass Women. This episode is brought to you by Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, our six-step system that helps you discover who you are, why you're here, and what you're meant to do with your life. If you'd like more information, join our waitlist at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash waitlist. Boy, do I have a treat for you today. In this episode, I am going to introduce you to the amazing Tiffany Jackson. Tiffany sent me an email back in the fall, and since then, I have gotten to know her. This woman has a hell of a story, probably the most remarkable story we've heard on this podcast to date. Tiffany was raised by her grandmother until she was in the third grade. After that, she was moved from her mother's home, other relatives' home, group homes, an elite boarding school, women's shelters, homeless shelters. Oftentimes, she lived there by herself. Throughout the entire time, she had this dream to make something out of her life. Since then, she's graduated with a bachelor's degree in mass communications from the Dan Rather School of Communications at Sam Houston State University. She attended a year of law school not her thing, and in 2018 graduated from Texas A&M University's College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences with a Master of Biomedical Science. Her plan is to attend medical school and be a physician epidemiologist, perfect career with COVID. She loves photography and car racing. Tiffany, did I get all that right? You did. Excellent. I'm impressed. Oh my gosh. So I have a question for you. When you hear all of that, everything that you've accomplished literally on your very own, what do you think? Honestly, it sounds kind of like I'm hearing about somebody else. It almost doesn't seem real that those have all been my life experiences, but it's me. Yeah. You know, I remember when I got your email back in October and you guys, this was a long ass email. You know how us, <laughs> you know, we ADHD people like to write, but it was so 
I don't know, Tiffany. It was just so incredibly well-written and you have this way in your writing to really tag at people's emotional heartstrings. (laughs) And I'm sure, you know, (laughs) yeah. No, it was so impactful because I had never heard a story like that. And I have to say that I don't think I can remember ever seeing such grit and drive and determination, despite all of the obstacles that you went through, as I've seen in your story. Do you feel that way? That that's what it's developed? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I feel a little disappointed because I'll still experience things and I will feel negative energy or negative emotion as a result. And I feel like it it doesn't really uh, make a lot of sense because I have overcome so many obstacles. Like why, you know, this too shall pass. Why don't I understand that? But ultimately, I mean, I know that that is the end result because, you know, I'm able to keep finding new opportunities and keep going, keep positive. Yeah. One of the things that I think I have noticed in your story, and we're going to get into Tiffany's story in a little bit, is... The ability you have to, along the way, get people to want to support and help you. Do do you see that as one of your big gifts? You know, it must be evidenced, you know, because I'm looking over my list of acknowledgments. That's a lot of people. And that's, you know, much certainly a lot more people than uh, I think most individuals that grew up in my situation, people they have in their corner. So yeah, I I do feel like I I have that ability. Yeah, no, it's absolutely impressive, actually. So we talk about drivenness as being a form of hyperactivity. First of all, are you combined type, inattentive, or hyperactive? That is a good question. I am, I believe, it wasn't necessarily differentiated to me, but more than likely, combined type. Yeah, that's kind of what I was... I was thinking too, and I hear that from a lot of ADHD women that they're just diagnosed and they're told, oh, you're ADHD, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than what specific type. And it's almost when they start doing their research, that's when they're able to figure out, oh, you know what? I think it's this one, but it was never formally, you know, diagnosed in that manner. Mm -hmm. So they talk about drivenness being a form of hyperactivity. That was a big kind of light bulb for me because the fact that I was, you know, reasonably successful, I would have never thought I had ADHD. And all along, there was always this thing in the back of my, you know, this little voice in the back of my head saying, oh, are you sure it's ADHD? Could it be ADHD? Oh, really? And then I read, and I think it was in uh, Dr. Ned Hallowell's and uh, Dr. John Rady's Driven to Distraction. I think I read there, Drivenness is a form of hyperactivity. And when I read that, it was literally light bulb went on. And that was when I was able to accept that, okay, it is ADHD. So I am wondering your drivenness. Do you think part of that is because of your ADHD? I feel like it has to be because it's very difficult for me to, uh, to sit still. And, you know, throughout the different difficult situations that I've experienced, I never allowed myself to just uh, sit and wallow and be stagnant uh, for a very appreciable amount of time. I always would 
you know, uh, in high school, I didn't have a car. I was riding the Metro city buses around uh, the city of Houston. So I always, you know, get up first thing in the morning and I'd be on the bus, uh, during the summers, just going different places, uh, interviewing for different jobs, seeing things. I'm a very visual person, always experiencing whatever I could, whenever I could. I think that's part of my hyperactivity. Do you feel like, um, you know, we talk about the task positive network and it lights up when we're in action and then the default mode network is, well, they call it the demon network because it's the seat of of our imagination. And for those of us with ADHD, it's where ruminating can, you know, start and end. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so a lot of the time what we do in order to stay out of that ruminating is we're just constantly in action. And we learn that we feel better when we're constantly in action. Not everybody's ADHD brain works like this, but I have discovered for those of us that have been, quote, you know, the most successful, that that is sort of a strategy that we've employed when we're busy and when we're in action, we don't have to think about all the stuff that we don't want to think about. Exactly. It's very true for me. Okay. So yeah, I guess that totally makes sense. Okay. So let's talk about your ADHD diagnoses. Can you tell me when were you diagnosed? So I was formally diagnosed in the fall semester of 2009. Um, That would have been my first semester of law school at uh, Thurgood Marshall Law School in Houston. And can you tell me some of the circumstances around that? Like, how did you end up being diagnosed there? What happened? Basically, so I had graduated from undergrad, like, one Saturday in August of 2009. And I began law school the very next Monday in 2009. Uh, So I didn't have much of a break. And somehow throughout undergrad, I was able to just like skate by, well, succeed with very little effort. But when I got to law school, it's like I hit a brick wall in so many ways, like socially, academically. I would sit down to read uh, property, reading assignments or contracts. And even if I weren't necessarily fatigued or tired, I would just fall asleep in the book, drool the whole bit. Also in lectures, (laughs) particularly uh, in criminal law, our criminal law professor, Judge Walker, she was very like animated and super uh, attuned to everyone in the classroom. So it, it always seemed like the minute my eyes would drift off and I would kind of unconsciously be zoning out. She would call me and be like, Miss Jackson, how do you feel about that? Or can you explain this concept? And it was usually she caught me just at the cusp where I was able to remember the last thing she just said. But very often I would not have any recollection of what she had been talking about. Uh, And I knew that if I wanted to be successful, I definitely needed to get to the root of the issue and find out what my problem was. So can I ask you, Tiffany, was there any interest in law school or was it one of those things that you just thought, oh, kind of like me, you know, it was like, oh, I could be a doctor, I could be a lawyer, I could be a dentist. (laughs) And that was like the three careers that that means you're successful. Was that kind of why you chose law school or were you actually really interested in it? 
Ah, oh, so all these years later, 12 years later, I think I'm comfortable in saying that I really did not have any specific interest in law school. I went, so from the time I was very young, I always wanted to be a physician. But when I would tell this to different people that I live with and different people that I met who, who knew my situation, who knew that I went to 14 schools between kindergarten and ultimately getting my GED in 12th grade, they're like, you're not going to get into medical school like you know you don't have the grades you you don't have the consistent educational science foundation and so i looked at what i had which at that time was like a significant amount of student loans and i was always very talented at reading and writing and speaking so i figured without any further preparation i would be easily able to get into law school um, and, you know, make what I thought was a good living, like more than $80,000 a year, easy. Uh, so that's why I went. Yeah, no, I hear this story a lot. So you were really struggling with focus and just getting through your work and the grades you were getting were not consistent with your actually your skills, right? Because I remember you telling me that you got these, you know, internships that nobody got their first year and you were able to do mm -hmm. all of these things in law when it came to actually being out there and not really practicing law, but, you know, literally in the job, but it was the book mm -hmm. part that was such a nightmare for you. Is that true? That is very true. I was very engaged in classroom discussions, particularly in torts. That was like my favorite course. And I answered or I asked very thought-provoking questions and provided very thought-provoking uh, answers. And it was so crazy because I would, you know, get my test, my exams back and, you know, they would just be bombed. But it, it was, yeah, this stark contrast. But you felt like you knew the material. I did. In, in actuality, I, I did. I was recently, I came across my old scores. And like in several of the cases, the classes, I had A's and B's, but they did this weird curving thing where like, I guess essentially everyone had an A, but the lowest A was an F. And that's how the cookie crumbled. Jeez. Oh my yeah. gosh. Okay. So did you then meet with the law school psychologist or? psychiatrist and that's how you were diagnosed exactly we had um a woman on staff just for that purpose um academic issues and, and counseling and i told her hey this is what's going on and you know even before i thought that that was you know the issue i thought maybe it was depression or something like she you know told me this is what i think it is and she strongly suggested like she wrote me a prescription for some type of a stimulant, Vyvanse. And I immediately said mm -hmm. no, because I, I'd known people growing up that through high school and undergrad who'd taken like Ritalin and, and other things. And they told me that it made their chest heart hurt and it made their heart beat really fast. And I already have anxiety. So I feel like that would really freak me out. So uh, I declined. Mm. Who knows? You may be one of the lucky ones, huh? <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah. My question then, Tiffany, is once you were diagnosed, were you surprised or were you like, oh my gosh, I knew there was something, but you didn't know what it was? Had you ever thought that, hey, maybe this thing that I've got, maybe it's ADHD before being diagnosed? 
I personally didn't think that. I mean, maybe in the back of my mind, but I was more or less vehemently against it because when I was in Girls Haven, which is the group foster home I lived in, a house parent, yeah, they were telling me something or, or I guess I wasn't sitting still at the table and doing my homework and they said something like, you know, I think you have ADHD. And I immediately bristled. I thought it was like an insult, like they were saying I was slow or, or challenged in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very frustrated by that because I'd always been considered gifted and talented. But by this point in my, by that point in my life, I, I felt like, you know, there was definitely some legitimacy that something wasn't right because I, I've always been very bright, but my grades have always been not very good. So there's a disconnect. Okay, so let's talk about um, symptoms, if you don't mind. And can we start with childhood? Was it that you always struggled with school and grades, or was there a time where school and grades were actually quite easy for you? So when I was young, so like kindergarten up to third grade, school was very easy for me. I still to this day remember I got this yellow, another colored, brightly colored bumper sticker from school announcing that I was on the AB honor roll for Silsby ISD or whatever the school was there. And um, my grandmother didn't have a car. She didn't drive, but I taped it to the wall in my room. But I used to always do exceptionally well in school. We had the standardized test in Texas, the TOS test at that time. And I always got, you know, something ridiculous, like in the 90. 9.5 percentile. Like I, like I did great. No issues at all. But around fourth grade, which I think is when I first left my grandmother's home, which is the only home I had ever known, that's when the issues began. Wow. You know, they say, and this is the exact same thing that happened with my son. And what I was told and what I've been told since then is up to fourth grade, you learn to read. After fourth mm-hmm. grade, you read to learn. And then that is when focus becomes so important and executive functions because you start having to put together all of the things that you're learning and, you know, doing homework and like all the, you know, prefrontal cortex stuff that you need to basically, mm-hmm. you know, get through school. That's when it starts, you know, it's necessary that y- you learn how to use that. So it's very common that these symptoms start coming up in fourth grade. And I wonder with you too, because as I know your story, you lived with your grandmother up until then. And it's after that in fourth grade that you went to live with, was it an aunt or a cousin? In fourth grade, I went to live just for one semester with my biological mother and then um, Child Protective Services took me out and put me back with my grandmother for that second semester. And then that summer between fourth and fifth grade, yes, I went to live with, I call her my aunt, but she's my third cousin twice removed. Yeah. And so what I wonder is, did you at the time think, well, the difficulty that I had in school, you know, now in the fourth grade and on is related to being moved out of my grandmother's home? And basically childhood trauma, right? This going back and forth. Your grandmother had been raising you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't immediately think that. 
I think, I guess my immediate thought was, you know, I, I grew up in two neighboring towns, Silsby for the first part, and then Beaumont, Texas for that fourth grade, first semester, and then back to Silsby. From what I understand, they're both low performing school districts. But when I went to live with my cousin, we moved to Clear Lake, which is where the Houston location of the Johnson Space Center is located. So we have the children of engineers like my cousin slash aunt was. And it was just a much more rigorous educational system. And I didn't have much of a preparation from where I had been learning previously. Got it. Okay. So that's what you attributed the difficulty solely to. Nobody ever thought, oh, maybe there is a learning challenge or, you know, something like ADHD. No, no. In fact, I mean, you know, when I went to live with um, my cousin, she just, you know, consistently, she thought that I was lazy and unmotivated. Hmm. That's terrible. And I can imagine as a fourth grader, you start to believe that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so was that the consistent message, Tiffany, from there on out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're better now. But during that time, she always had this saying that she would say to me that uh, I don't think I will ever forget. There's this bridge that runs through downtown Houston. Um, It's I-45. It's a freeway, but they call it the Pierce Elevated because that's the street that runs beneath. And she always told me that if I didn't get it together, I was going to be living in one of the homeless camps beneath the Pierce Elevated. And I always remember that, you know, at that time and today when I see a homeless camp and, you know, I felt, I mean, it sounds so cliche or whatever, but I felt like I was a failure and or that I was destined for ultimate failure in life. Yeah. So at one point in high school, I think it was, you actually did end up in a homeless shelter by yourself. Correct? I did. Yeah, that was unfortunate. It happened twice because the first time I'd already gone to boarding school and it was a beautiful experience and I loved it. And I can't say enough good things about it, but I was not reinvited because of my grades. And so I went to another highly ranked school in Houston called yeah, West. You tested when you tested in, right? You were like in the 98th percentile. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got an immediate acceptance. Okay. But But um, then you just could not keep up because of grades. Yeah. I felt Spanish. I felt math. Those were actually the only two classes that I failed. And then later on, I found out that the private school that I was at before, I already had credit for math. But I don't know. Technically, it's like I already had credit, but I agreed to go in as a freshman, because I was a sophomore at my previous parochial school, because it was a boarding school, internationally recognized, it would made more sense for me to get the full foundation and go in as a freshman. But, you know, that was what it was. And so I went from Austin, where that school was, to Houston to live with my cousin again. And uh, I went in all AP classes, and I failed AP history. And as my punishment, she dropped me off at the um, Greyhound bus station to go back to Beaumont to live with my mother. 
she felt like she was not making a positive enough influence or that I wasn't taking her uh, efforts to heart. Long story short, I get on the Greyhound. I go to um, Beaumont. My mom doesn't come get me because she says, you know, she didn't want me in 1985 and she didn't want me then in 2003. So I went back with nowhere to go. I called the Covenant House Nine Line and ended up there for like overnight. They found out that I was a minor. And so that was not legal. So my aunt had to come get me. And I lived with her for the rest of that school year. Uh, But then my senior year of high school, um, I ended up living on my own. Because I turned 18, like, during my junior year. And uh, I couldn't pay the rent. I was working two years. Sorry, I was working two jobs that senior year at a grocery chain we have here called HEB as a bagger. And I was working as a cashier at the store across the street. Um, doesn't exist anymore, but it's called Oshman's. And um, I, I was remember Oshman's. Yeah, I was renting a room from a little <laughs> a little lady, and um, she ha- she lost a tenant, you know, like the twenty eighth or something of uh, October. And so she's like, November first, I need you to have nine hundred dollars, and like I have been paying like seventy five, like three hundred dollars a month. So there's no way I could do it. But um, she uh, was kind enough to help move me into the homeless shelter. That's where I remained until I got my GED and uh, went to a dorm at Sam Houston State University. How, Tiffany, did you even know, like, what to do to go to college, how to go to college? I mean, you had no guidance. Exactly. Um, So I didn't know (laughs) at all. It was by absolute chance and circumstance, and and maybe not. I'm I'm very certain that God was involved. But one lady, one day, this lady who used to volunteer at this shelter, this almost halfway house um, for the adults that were there, 20 years before, on a whim, came one Saturday in uh, December 2004 and dropped off some fruit baskets. And her name is Nancy Keeling. And she met me and she was very impressed by me. And she used to be a professor at a local community college. She introduced me to another professor named Dr. Velma Smith. And together they conspired to get me admitted that spring of 2005. And uh, yeah, Nancy had graduated from a school called Sam Houston State University where she'd met her husband. And um, she... uh, you know, at the time, I wanted to go to University of Texas at Austin, but of course, with a GED and not good grades, I didn't have a fighting chance to go to a flagship school like that. So she convinced me to consider going to Sam Houston State, and yeah, that's how I was able to start college. Wow. So can I ask you this? Did you know you were smart? Or at that point, having, you know, struggled at so many schools and, you know, your relatives are telling you you're never going to amount to anything if you can't get it together. Did you think that I'm just not smart and I'm, I'm not destined for success? Or did you know in the back of your mind, did you always know there's something wrong here and I know I'm smart? I just can't show it the way they want me to. Mm-hmm. I feel like I always knew that I was smart. Like I always felt inwardly like incited when people would kind of dumb things down where they would talk to me because they you know 
assume that I wasn't innately intelligent. I felt very frustrated. I felt very sad. Yeah, I felt like there's something that other people have. Uh, they're able to perceive things or, or communicate in ways, be strategic in ways that I'm not. And that's what is holding me back from success. Like I could look and read things like I usually did, like on the internet about this. How can I say it? The steps to take to find success or be successful at work. But when it came to the actual execution of those steps, that's where I always fall short. Got it. So Tiffany, we've talked about, you know, some of your ADHD symptoms, you know, your struggle with focus, your struggle with, it sounds like executive function issues. Is that true as far as getting your homework and your work done. Were there executive function challenges as far as planning and scheduling and knowing, you know, how to, if you had a test, how to study in advance for it or any issues like that? Tremendous amounts of issues like that. I was just the most, even with a planner at that time, a little school planner, so you give this out. I just, I wouldn't even use it or I would write things. And then I would most of the time forget to look back on it. It, it was, I was a logistical nightmare. Yeah. So schoolwork was just completely overwhelming. You'd have all this stuff you needed to get done and you didn't even know where to start. So you didn't? Um, yeah, pretty much. That would be a definitely accurate depiction of what was happening. Well, I would usually wait till the last minute and it, it didn't turn out well. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we're all familiar with that one. <laughs> so were there any other ADHD symptoms that you experienced? Anything say around emotion? Yes. So at the time, I didn't know what this term was or, or what to call what I was experiencing, but I had very much the RSD, the rejection sensitivity disorder, I believe it's called. Dysphoria? Yeah. Dysphoria, yes. I would, yeah. I never, you know, sometimes I think about this. I, I feel like some people, because I used to get teased a lot uh, growing up. I know people probably can't tell this, but I'm by my voice. I'm six foot three inches tall, and I hit my growth spurt when I was in, wow third or fourth grade. By fifth grade, I was five foot six and I wore a size nine and a half in women's shoes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I would get teased a lot. And I think most people, I mean, I don't know, but it seems like some people will get teased and, you know, it doesn't really bother them. Like life goes on, but it would really bother me like a lot. And the things that my cousin would say to me, they would really and I bother me, and I would ruminate on them. I would ruminate on things like why didn't my mother, you know, want to keep me? Why didn't she have anything to want to do with me? And I would react very uh, in a volatile manner and uh, volatile manner, and sometimes like kick holes in the wall or throw things and make holes in the wall at my uh, cousin's house and. So we're 18 years apart. That's why I call her um, my aunt. And that's why she had a house um, of her own. And, and she was like really like 
she did not appreciate that. And I mean, to this day, I mean, I don't have kids, but I feel like that's just things that teenagers do. But like, she like, that's the main reason why she like kicked me out, like before I graduated, because I was like destroying her house. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like literally destroying her house, you would get really angry and damage things. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but like there's this one. I actually I feel like that one time I actually fell down the stairs. There's one like at the landing of the stairwell where there was like a hole. But usually in my room, I would like throw stuff and it would leave little like marks in the sheetrock or whatever. She got, you know, understandably very upset about that. Mm-hmm. So with the rejection sensitive dysphoria, was that something that I'm just curious, like when you are a teenager and these things are happening, what are you thinking? Are you thinking there's something wrong with me? There's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with, you know, this experience that I'm having. That's such a great question. Cause I've been thinking about that a lot in general. Cause through my work, I deal with teens and I'm like, I remember it being just a very awful and bad, like angsty time of life. I don't know what I thought or felt. I just know I listened to music like all the time with the door closed and my headphones in and everything was like super emotional. And I would like overthink like every little thing. Like it was just like, I felt, I felt to answer your question, I felt like I was generally in the right and whoever the opposition was, I felt like they were in the wrong. What's interesting is there are so many things that could be, right? You can think, mm-hmm. oh, well, the angstiness and the anger and the, you know, the flash kind of anger, it could be just being a teenager, right? It could be my situation, you know, what's been going on with me, you know, the fact that my mother abandoned me and, you know, I don't really have any strong support, you know, among relatives. You never really then think, oh, could it also be ADHD? Could it just be that I'm so frustrated because my brain works a certain way and society wants me to work in a completely different way and I'm not understanding what's going on? Like, I'm not understanding how to use my brain to actually be successful and to be happy. Right. I mean, at that time in my life, when I was 16, 17 years old, ADHD was nowhere on my radar. Like, I I didn't even know what was going on. But I think the culmination of all those things, ADHD and the unstable living environment and the childhood trauma, like everything mixed together and made me, you know, feel that way. But I feel, you know, at that time, like, you know, my aunt thought I was, my cousin thought that I was like a bad kid. And that in turn caused me to feel like I was a bad kid. But then I learned what people at school who weren't necessarily bad kids were doing like drugs and sex and everything. And it was so much worse. I'm like, wow, like, I'm really not that bad at all. You know, it's interesting. What they typically say about girls is that we internalize our symptoms and women versus Mm -hmm. men externalize their symptoms. And it's almost like with you, you externalized your symptoms. I mean, I'm sure you did some of the internal stuff too, but and especially coming from a girl, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, if that's not expected. So I can totally see that, you know, you're very outward in your symptoms and you're very direct and very vocal about it. 
where people, you know, that makes them uncomfortable, especially coming from a girl. They don't know what to do with it. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So you had this, you know, very traumatic and, oh, I'm not, I'm not even thinking of the right words, Tiffany, but, you know, this up and down kind of childhood and all of this stuff that as a child that you're supposed to navigate, that most children have an adult to help them. And you, and you really didn't. And you're sitting there, you're thinking you're a, you're a bad kid. You end up in these, you know, homeless shelters, but you find this uh, guardian angel who kind of shows you that no, Tiffany, college is absolutely a possibility for you. And then you, you know, go through college, you do really well, you have all these strong supports there. It sounds like you really enjoyed yourself in college. And then you end up in law school, right? Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, oh my God, how is this happening again, right? (laughs) But that is where you finally get yourself diagnosed. And so I am curious, once you got yourself diagnosed, what changed? Was that diagnosis actually helpful to you in kind of crawling out of where you were and figuring out what you needed to do next and, you know, why you did what you did? So in the immediate aftermath of that diagnosis, things did not change for me. In fact, they got terribly worse, you know, because... I got that scholarship my first semester of law school. And then my second semester, I got the summer associate position. That was all well and good. But um, during that summer, you know, I found out that I was not going to be reinvited to continue my law studies because my GPA was below the requisite that it was. I don't recall what it was supposed to have been. And it's like my life came to a screeching halt. Like everything that seemed like it was stable and on the right path suddenly wasn't anymore. So the firm that I was working with as a summer associate was gracious enough to let me stay throughout the summer, which was great because I had traveled to another part of Texas that I'd never been before and I was living there. But when I came back to Houston, it was impossible to find a job because like I started, I mean, I couldn't get uh, attorney jobs because I didn't have a JD and I found out that I couldn't get paralegal jobs or legal assistant jobs because I was told that those places don't hire people that, you know, had went to law school because the dynamic is totally different than someone that went to the local community college and got like a paralegal certificate like it would just cause issues so uh, I ended up losing my place because I didn't get you know financial aid that fall semester and living in a motel and working in a warehouse in the heat of August and September Mm. and it was at that point you know where I definitely began to experience a lot of self-doubt So did you start looking at the ADHD and thinking that because I'm diagnosed with ADHD, that must mean that I can't be successful? Like, did you know any of the, I I mean, I would imagine the literature out there, you know, the books, what you could read about ADHD around then, it wasn't entirely, it wasn't very positive. It wasn't. 
ultimately, I just focused on, I, I went into survival mode. I've always been an animal lover. So it wasn't just me, but it was myself and my two dogs and my cat. And I just worked all these odd jobs until, I'll say, October of that year, October of 2010. And I got a job working for Bank of New York Mellon um, as a temp, as a contractor. And then I got a permanent role kind of doing the same thing, working in um, human resources outsourcing for a, a company. And, and I did that full time. my first corporate job for about three years. So during that time, you know, I didn't think a lot about ADHD, not even when I started master's program in 2018. It wasn't until this past summer, 2020, when I was like, okay, I think I need to address this ADHD issue. Hmm. And was there a specific symptom that you were like, I-, I need to get to the bottom of this? Yeah. So, you know, COVID had started and, you know, prior to that, you know, I had my master's, but, you know, my degree was made to go specifically into professional school. So medical school, it's not really a terminal degree. So I got a job selling cars, but when the pandemic started, I became in high demand. So I became a microbiologist and then promoted to an epidemiologist. And it's my first time in my life where I have my own office and a quiet space. And <laughs> what would happen was I, I worked on the top floor of a building and I had the um, a view of the downtown Austin skyline. And I would just sit and just stare at the skyline like for hours or I would browse the web and read different articles. I mean, things that are pertinent to epidemiology, but not, you know, directly processing cases as fast as I could. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, like now that I'm kind of given free reign as a true professional to work in the autonomy of my own office, I need to be able to consistently produce. Why is it that my mind is here, there, everywhere, and not on what I'm supposed to be doing? And uh, that's when. You know, I realized instead of listening to music while I worked, maybe I should listen to like a podcast or something educational, audiobooks. And that's when I found your podcast. And it was like a whole new world because I started hearing these descriptions of these symptoms and these things that I had my whole life, that I had experienced my whole life. Particularly, you know, the frustration of being mid 30s, exceptionally bright, and then topping out income wise at like, you know, before that job, like $30,000 a year, mm-hmm. it, it didn't make any sense. And it was very embarrassing to me. And I realized, well, hey, you know, there's other people that are experiencing this, and this is the reason why. Hmm. So what have you learned since then that you need in order to be successful and happy? Are there certain ingredients for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I need lots of rest, like at least eight hours of sleep per night to help me, you know, stay centered and stay grounded. I need to be able to write things down because a lot of things, you know, from the time I was younger to adulthood, somebody will tell me something in passing and my automatic response is, okay, yeah, got it. But it literally goes in one ear and out the other. Like I don't retain um, spoken information very well at all. 
So if direction or something is given to me in an email, something I can always refer back to, that's preferred. Otherwise, I take it upon myself to take notes, either written notes on my iPad. Otherwise, if I write on scraps of paper like I used to do, they get lost immediately. Or I open up uh, the notes app on my iPhone and uh, record things there. And that way I can look back and it will jog my memory of what I'm supposed to be working on. So, Tiffany, what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? To me, the key to living successfully with ADHD is being able to find specific workarounds and tools that work for me so that I can reasonably perform at the same level as someone who's not encumbered by ADHD. I need to be able to, you know, produce and be seen as marketable and valuable asset to, you know, an employee or even an employer or even a volunteer organization um, so that I can, you know, have a good career. I mean, it's not enough to say, oh, I have this, I'm not going to do anything about it and just be stagnant. Like that's not acceptable for the things that I want to achieve. So do you really love the job you're in now? I do. I mean, well, so I recently started a new role at the beginning of April. And so I'm working remotely on the Mexican border. So it's it's very different than what I was doing before. Wow. But um, yeah, I do enjoy it because it's like a kind of like a resort, for lack of a better word, but everyone's deployed from all over the country. So that's mm-hmm. neat. I'm more of a managerial role than I was at my previous epidemiology role. So now I, I'm accountable for making sure, for enforcing different protocols and making sure that people are abiding by those. But I do like it. I and mean, I love studying infectious disease and being an expert in the field. Well, especially given what's going on right now, right? Everybody's interested in what you have to say. Yes, yes. So, Tiffany, what are your plans as far as um, I know that the big dream is medical school. So do you have a plan around that? Huh, do I have a plan around that? Um, so the, the next step in the plan is I'm applying to a, a, a doctor of health sciences program um, mm-hmm. at a medical school. And I'm doing that because it, it's virtual, but it will give me a doctorate degree. And I feel like that will bolster my medical school application on top of the master's that I have. And also it will allow me to work full time. Yeah. So Tiffany, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? Well, I'm on Instagram. My Instagram is at Texas spelled out T-E-X-A-S underscore Senator. I'm on LinkedIn under T-J Jackson. And my email address is Tiffany, T-I-F-F-A-N-Y dot Jackson, J-A-C-K-S-O-N at me dot com. Okay. And you wanted to read something at the end before we say goodbye to you. Yes, yes. So I have a list of very special people that have helped me, and I wanted to acknowledge them. And they are Eloise and Jenny Smith. Ms. Kathy Matthews, Sandra Schroeder, Sadie and Joe Bondurant, Ms. Marguerite Humphrey, Congressman and Mrs. Nick Lampson, Ms. Nancy Keeling, her friend, Dr. Velma Smith, 
Dr. Karen Fitzhugh, Dr. and Mrs. Mark Wilson, Dr. and Mrs. Brian Blunt, Miss Judy Jones, Chris and Amy McGuffey and their family, Sarah and Dan Canary and their family, Ron and Tina Rader and their family, Julia and David Gardner, Mr. Doug Peterson, Dr. Jenny Defren, Mike and Diane McCleary, everyone at St. Stephen's Episcopal School, my cousin, Dr. Stephanie Brown, my friend, Jeannie Williams, my sister, Cassandra Jimmins, my mother and my grandmother, and God for bringing all of these very special people into my life. I love that, Tiffany. Thank you so much. And I just want you to know that I am not betting against you. You will be Dr. Jackson. I am certain of it. So thank you for spending time with us here today. Thank you, Tracy. Absolutely. So that's what I have for you for this week. This episode of ADHD for Smartass Women was brought to you by Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, our six-step system that shows you how to fall in love with your brain, your ADHD brain. You can join our waitlist at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash waitlist. Our next session will start at the beginning of July. If you like this episode with Tiffany, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know, your reviews really help in that regard. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.